So this morning we are we are coming back to Acts in a, in a sort of way where we will be laying the foundation for really next week, but the foundation is worthy of being laid in and of itself. So it was three weeks ago that we came to Acts chapter 2. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we saw that this is the beginning of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. An Israel of which we are now a part, into which we have been incorporated as Gentiles. This this event in Acts 2, and we're gonna I I, I envision us moving through Acts at a good clip, relatively speaking, after we get through chapter 2. Chapter 2 is so rich, it is so full. And so here in this chapter we have the dawning of the eschatological age. We remember the noise that came from heaven, like a gale force rushing wind, okay? And we remember the tongues, like blazing consuming fire, but not consuming the disciples. Dividing themselves and resting on each one of them. And we remember that these things all happened when the day of Pentecost had fully come. That's that phrase, fully come. And so in the arrival of this day, the time on God's redemptive calendar, God has this calendar that no one had seen, that we can only see in retrospect with hindsight. The time on God's redemptive calendar is filled up. Okay. The age of the risen Messiah is here. And therefore, if you have the age of the risen Messiah, you have the age of his life-giving spirit. There's no way to overstate what is happening on this day. The question is, why on the day of Pentecost? And, uh, you know, again, I, I, I think... Sometimes maybe we think the day of Pentecost was named that because the Spirit was poured out on it. The Spirit was poured out that day, so we call it Pentecost. But Pentecost comes from the Old Testament, from the feasts. And so when we ask, why the day of Pentecost? Why should this day be chosen for this redemptive, historical, climactic moment of the outpouring of the Spirit? Why on this day? To understand that question, we have to go back and try to understand the ethos, the defining character of Israel's feasts. So that's what I'm going to invite us to do today, is to go back and get into the ethos of it, the defining character of what their feasts were about. This sermon, again, is going to be the intro to next week's message. So next week, we're going to just come to Acts 2, and we're going to see an amazing, beautiful connection. Israel's calendar was not like our calendars. It was a lunar calendar, so it was organized around the moon and the cycles of the moon. Each month began on the new moon, and so therefore the middle of the month was always a full moon. Right? Just That's important kind of just having our calendars. Whereas our agricultural year for the planting of, of crops and, and, and 
plants that always starts in the spring. Um, Israel's agricultural year is the opposite. It starts in the fall in the month of Tishrei. That was their month, the month of Tishrei, which would be our September, October, depending on where the, where the new moon is, right? It could fall at different times. That's why it's September, October in there. This is when they started planting their barley and they planted their wheat. Six months later, after you had all the winter rains, they don't so much get the winter snows, that'd be on the mountains maybe, but, but the winter rains, they would begin the harvest in the month of Aviv. It's spelled with a B, but you say it with a V. So in the month of Aviv, which will be our March or April. Now I wrote a lot out in your handouts. This was a difficult sermon to condense in a handout. So again, read along or not, take or leave your handouts. Um, harvest season, in turn, it starts in the spring, harvesting the barley. It lasts for six months. And that harvest season included not just the grain harvest in the spring, but grape harvest in the summer, and then the harvest of figs and pomegranates and olives in late summer, early fall. So it's this six-month harvest season from March, April to September, October, that was also the season for Israel's appointed feasts. All their feasts happened during this harvest season. There were three pilgrim feasts, and really only three feasts at all. Some people call other, other things feasts, but they weren't really feasts. They were just special days that weren't feasts. There were three feasts, and they were all pilgrim feasts, meaning all the adult males in Israel at each of these three feasts were required to go and appear before God at the temple. And each of these feasts coincided with specific milestones in the progress of the harvest. Because harvest is going on for six months. And these feasts all coincided with specific milestones in that harvest time. So we ask, what is this connection between Israel's feasts and Israel's harvests? You might say, well, obviously, you have just harvested. You might as well feast. Right? The connection is obvious. That's not the ethos of the feast. That's not the defining characteristic of what this is about. We're going to explore that now. Okay. So in the first place. God sovereignly timed his redemption, and it's in your handout, timed his redemption of Israel from Egypt so that it just happened to coincide perfectly <laughs> with the beginning of the harvest season in the month of Aviv in March, April. Now remember, God redeems his people out of Egypt. That's redemption. That's not a harvest. They're in Egypt. They don't have any harvest. They're not doing harvesting yet. Okay, but God chose to time his redemption so it was going to fit perfectly with harvest beginning. It was the 14th or 15th day of Aviv during the full moon that God brought Israel out of Egypt and established the annual feast of Passover and unleavened bread. So now you have a feast to go with the event. Passover, probably cover over, I believe Passover is the wrong 
translation, it should be cover over. In other words, it was celebrating the day when God covered over the dwellings of the Israelites. The word, uh, anyway, there's, a, there's very strong reasons, and I'm not the only one who thinks that. But God covered over the dwellings of the Israelites so that the destroyer would not enter and kill their firstborn. Nevertheless, to avoid confusion, I'm going to use Passover. Um, Yahweh passed over, this is the usual interpretation, he passed over Israel's dwellings and did not enter to destroy the firstborn. So he passed over, but I would suggest he covered over their dwellings. But I'm going to use Passover. So, through the blood of the Passover, lamb or goat, applied to the doorposts of their houses, the people of Israel were delivered from God's righteous judgment. At all times, we deserve death, brothers and sisters. At all times, that's what we deserve in ourselves. And so the people of Israel, when the destroying angel comes through to destroy the firstborn in Egypt, the people of Israel, their firstborn, could have died as well if they didn't have that blood on the doorpost. They were delivered from God's righteous judgment on the one hand, but they were also delivered from Egypt and slavery. And so it's this deliverance, this redemption, that they celebrated in that annual Passover feast on the 14th or 15th day of Aviv. This Passover meal then, in turn, marks the beginning of a seven-day feast. So Passover was really just a meal. It was the opening meal of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And that other unleavened bread, we know, was a reminder of Israel's bread of affliction. That they had to leave Egypt in such a hurry that they didn't have time to let their bread rise. They had to bind that up on their shoulders, uh, their kneading bowls, before it was leavened. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrated them leaving Egypt. So now, in the case of this first feast, and again, I, I tell you, I hope this will be interesting. And I want it to be more than interesting. I want it to be edifying. This is the goal at every step. But we are also doing a little more this week of, of teaching so we can get into the ethos of this so we can understand why Pentecost on Act, in Acts 2. So, in the case of this first feast, the harvest connection was only added in your handout later. Did you almost forget the harvest? What does harvest have to do with any of this? God redeemed Israel from Egypt. He saved their firstborn from the destroying angel, and he gave them a feast to remember this annually. What does this have to do with harvest? God added that connection later. Passover and unleavened bread were originally a historic festival, marking the anniversary of Israel's redemption from Egypt. But we remember God sovereignly timed that redemption to coincide with the beginning of harvest season in Canaan. And of course, for 40 years, they couldn't celebrate uh, any agricultural festivals because they were wandering in the desert. They weren't planting, they weren't harvesting, so they couldn't do any of that. But in Leviticus, God gave them instructions for what they were supposed to do in celebrating Passover and unleavened bread after they got into the land. When you get there, this is what you do, he said. When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, 
Then you shall bring in the sheaf, and this is all in the context of unleavened bread. You shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your barley harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And that the day after the Sabbath, that Sabbath is either the, the regular weekly Sabbath that could move around in, in Unleavened Bread Week, or it's the first day of Unleavened Bread, which was effectively a Sabbath rest and was always the first day. Either way. So we see now that there is this, in your handout, this connection being established between Israel's redemption from Egypt and Israel's fruitful harvest in the land of Canaan. Okay, did you see that? Or was that the moment that maybe we missed that? We've got to get that. There's this connection being established between the redemption from Egypt and the harvest in Canaan. Maybe we can imagine what that connection is. Just as God sovereignly timed his redemption from Egypt to coincide with the beginning of harvest, he also sovereignly timed the culmination of that redemption. Israel's redemption culminates when they enter the land. When they cross the Jordan and first set foot in the promised land. And he sovereignly timed that entrance of the land to coincide with, guess what? The beginning of harvest. He did it again. Joshua 5. Then after crossing the Jordan into the land, the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal and celebrated the Passover. And we know when the Passover happens. Beginning of barley harvest. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, on the desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, which was the first day of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, on that very day, they ate some of the yield of the land. Connection. Passover. Unleavened bread. Deliverance from Egypt. Harvests in Canaan. Unleavened cakes and roasted grain. What does that connection mean? between Israel's redemption from Egypt and their harvests in Canaan. It is important for us to remember that Israel's redemption was a typological redemption. I've used this analogy before. It's like a shadow being cast backward in time by the substance which was still to come. So let me just put it like this. The majority of people who were redeemed from slavery in Egypt, and even redeemed from God's judgment in the death of all their firstborn, the majority of those people were not actually redeemed from their more ultimate slavery to sin and death. So God redeemed them from Egypt. They were a redeemed people. But the majority of them were not redeemed. Not ultimately. They were redeemed typologically. It was this typological redemption via the blood of the Passover lamb that pointed to their need for that greater redemption, right? That, that would come through Christ. So it was a shadow of the substance pointing to what we really needed and what they could have through faith. Likewise, in the same way, many of those who entered the promised rest 
in the land of Canaan, they never entered into the eternal rest of God's people in heaven. So God said, you will enter into the rest of Canaan. They entered that, but they didn't enter into God's eternal rest in heaven. It was this typological rest, see, this picture, this foreshadowing that pointed to the people's need for that greater, and our need for that greater ultimate rest that the Messiah would accomplish for his people. And so also, now let's, let's finish drawing our, connecting our dots. The fruitful harvests in the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, right? They were a typological foreshadowing. They were pointing to all the true spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that will be lavished on you and on me in Christ Jesus. That redemption was a type of the redemption that we have in full in Christ. Now, we've seen that the goal of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, actually, we haven't seen this. I thought it was somewhere else. The goal of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt was their enjoyment of the blessings of life in Canaan. God said, I'm taking you out to bring you in. I'm delivering you from oppression and slavery in order that you might enjoy rest in the land of milk and honey, of fruitful harvests. Okay, but, 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 if Israel is to enter those blessings and continue to enjoy them in the land, it is necessary they keep the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. If the exodus from Egypt and the entrance into Canaan, those are the bookends. Those are the bookends in your handout of Israel's redemption. Then it's impossible to separate out what comes in the middle. What's in the middle? The giving of the law covenant at Mount Sinai. So God said to Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God at this mountain. Why am I bringing you out? To bring you to Sinai and give you the law and my covenant. He said to Moses, was to say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, let my son go that he may serve me. That's the point of the covenant. God redeemed Israel from Egypt in order that they might keep his covenant at Sinai. And in turn, God gave his people the covenant at Sinai in order that by keeping that covenant, they might enter the land and always enjoy its blessings. For how long? Well, and when it says forever, at one level, it means simply for as long, forever, for as long as that typological covenant is in effect. When the old covenant, which was tied to that land, expires, then those typological blessings in the land expire because they're caught up into the fulfillment that we have in Christ in the ultimate 
the ultimate heavenly land. Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy, You shall therefore keep every commandment, Sinai, which I am commanding you today, so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land, Canaan, into which you are about to cross to possess it, so that you may prolong your days on the land, which Yahweh swore to give to your fathers, to give to them into their seed, a land flowing with milk and honey. So I'm going to ask you a question now. Do you see how the exodus from Egypt and the covenant at Sinai and the entrance into the promised land and the enjoyment of its blessings, they are all of one piece together. Okay, now, we've seen how the exodus from Egypt, if I take those three things that are all of one piece, and I look at them separately, the exodus from Egypt and the entrance into the promised land point to the spiritual blessings. They point us to the spiritual blessings and, that have been lavished on us in Jesus Christ under the covenant of grace. But, but what about that thing in the middle? What about the law covenant at Sinai? What is that pointing us to? Well, I, I want to point out that for the spiritual seed of Abraham, Abraham had two seeds. Spiritual seed, fleshly seed, carnal seed. For the spiritual seed of Abraham, who were partakers of the covenant of grace, they had believed in the promise of the coming Messiah. When they kept the law, covenant at Sinai, when they kept that law, it was the expression of the fact that they were already justified by faith alone in the coming Messiah. They were justified by faith. The law was written on their hearts. That's why you could write Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 19, Psalm chapter 119, right? They had the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple. But, but, another but, 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 okay. For the nation of Israel as a people who were formed and made and constituted by that old Mosaic covenant. This is the carnal, fleshly seed. For that nation, keeping the law was the condition. Okay? For the spiritual seed, there was a sense for them in which they kept the law as the sign they were justified already through faith. But for the, but for the fleshly seed, and, and many of the spiritual seed were also a fleshly seed because they were physically descended from Abraham. For the fleshly seed, for the nation as a whole, keeping the law was the condition for the enjoyment of God's blessings in the land of promise. It's the fact. Keep the law, you can keep in the land. Break the law, I'm going to kick you out. Right? That's the way it was. So for the fleshly seed of Abraham, the nation as a whole, the Mosaic law covenant pointed them backwards to that broken covenant of works in the garden. In other words, God said to the people, do this and live. Do this and live. Typological. He's not saying do this and have eternal life. He's saying do this and I'll give you your rest in the land of Canaan. In Exodus 13 then, 
we see how all three of these realities are commemorated in the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. So now watch for this. Exodus 13. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This day in the month of Aviv, you are going out. And then look what he does. And it shall be when Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. When he brings you into there, you shall do this service the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to Yahweh. And now watch this. It will be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth, which means also in your heart. It should be there too. For with a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out of Egypt. Do you see what happened there? Passover, unleavened bread, bringing out of Egypt. But now when God brings them into the land flowing with milk and honey, they are to observe that ordinance so that the law of God might be in their mouth. To celebrate Passover and unleavened bread was to celebrate the redemption from Egypt. And so also, it was to renew the nation's commitment to keeping the covenant, Sinai, the law, so that they might continue to enjoy the blessings of life in the land with all its fruitful harvests. Canaan. You see, their harvests were a lot bigger deal than our harvests. Not in the sense that they needed food to eat, just like we need food to eat, but because their harvests were intimately connected with their redemption, with their rest in the land, dependent on their redemption from Egypt and the keeping of the law given at Sinai. See, their harvests were redemptive in a way that our physical harvests today are not. Maybe now we can see why God took this originally historical feast of Passover and unleavened bread and he added now this seasonal agricultural element with the offering of the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest. He adds that to it once they're in the land. And so that offering of the first fruits of the barley harvest, the grain harvest in March and April, That reminds the people, God is the source of all the blessings of this harvest. Insofar as he's the one who redeemed us from Egypt, who gave us the covenant at Sinai, and who brought us in to the land. The ethos. We know that today, the Passover sacrifice and meal They sacrificed the lamb, and then they ate of the meal. 
that is fulfilled in Jesus. Because he is our Passover sacrifice and meal. He instituted the Lord's Supper. As he was eating the Passover meal, he said, this is my body. This is my blood. And then he was crucified on the following morning, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Apostle John points out that just as no bone of the Passover sacrifice was to be broken, so no bone of Jesus, our Passover lamb, was broken. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, also was sacrificed. We see then how Jesus has delivered you and me, not just from temporal judgments of of the death of a firstborn, but from eternal destruction in hell. That is the salvation we have been given. He delivers us not just from slavery to other human beings, but from slavery to that which is within me, my own sin. And so in Jesus, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, every one without exception is guaranteed to you and to me. What's the word? (laughs) Do you know it? It's not. Not on condition of our obedience in a covenant of works, but because of God's gracious guarantee that the requirement of the law will now be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay. Law. Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover and unleavened bread. Now we've done most of the groundwork now, so we're going to move more quickly in these last two fees. We remember, how long did the harvest season in Israel last? Six months, right? And each of Israel's three pilgrim festivals lined up with a specific milestone in the harvest. So Passover and unleavened bread mark the beginning of the harvest in the month of Aviv. Exactly to the day, six months later, in the month of Tishrei, which will be our September-October, the seven-day Feast of Ingathering marked the end of the harvest season. The beginning, now we're to the end of the harvest season. Not just the end of the spring harvest of barley and wheat, but the end also of the summer harvest of grapes and the fall harvest of figs and pomegranates and olives. So you get to the end of the whole deal and you have a feast again. You shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the fields. Now, do you think this is just about, oh, you've got a lot of food. It's time to thank God for it and rejoice and eat. Or is there a redemptive connection here? We've already seen in Passover and Unleavened Bread that Israel's harvests in Canaan are only to be enjoyed in the light of their redemption from Egypt and the law covenant that was given at Sinai, which enables them to enjoy the harvests in the land. And so another name for the Feast of Ingathering is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Maybe you recognize it by that name. So listen to God's instructions concerning this feast in Leviticus 23. On the 15th of this seventh month, which will be our full moon in September, October, 
This is the Feast of Booths. When you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of Yahweh for seven days. And what are you supposed to do when you're eating this feast and celebrating for seven days because all your harvest is gathered in? You take for yourself the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall be glad before Yahweh your God for seven days. And why are you so glad? Well, you live in these booths for seven days so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. See, their, their feasts are not like our Thanksgiving feast. There's a lot more going on here. The Feast of Ingathering, or Booths, celebrates the blessings of a settled life in the land. Rest in Canaan. And that's a type of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places lavished upon us in Christ. And it does that by reminding the people of the days when they were living in temporary shelters, when God brought them out of Egypt and they're going through the desert. That was a type of our deliverance from sin and death and God's protective presence until we enter fully into our inheritance. Now we remember Israel could not presume on these blessings of this settled life in Canaan. Uh, the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Booths, that was to celebrate how wonderful it is to live in a settled life in Canaan with its annual harvests and the fruitfulness of the land. But when they did that, they were to remember God brought them out of Egypt. Furthermore, they were to remember that they were there on a grant from God, assuming they kept the covenant. The law. Law. So we read in Deuteronomy 31. Um, Oh, I said that there. God was the source of their fruitful harvest. Not just as the one who makes the crops grow, but as the one who brought them out of Egypt, led them through the wilderness, and who gave them the law, so that by keeping that law, they might live long in the land. Every time you harvested the crops, you remembered those redemptive realities. Deuteronomy 31. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the Feast of Booths, you shall read this law. In front of all Israel, in their hearing, assemble the people, the men, the women, the little ones, the sojourner who's within your gates, so that they may hear, so that they may learn and fear Yahweh your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. And so we see again in your handout how the exodus from Egypt and the covenant at Sinai and life in Canaan are all of one piece together. And so in the celebration of the feast of ingathering or booths at the end of the harvest season, all three of these redemptive realities are brought together just like they were in Passover and Unleavened Bread. If Passover and Unleavened Bread, at the beginning of the harvest season, emphasizes especially, what does it emphasize especially out of those three things? The deliverance from Egypt, right? Coming out of Egypt. Now it includes life in Canaan. It includes 
the, the emphasis on the law. But there's a special emphasis on coming out of Egypt at Passover and Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Ingathering, or Booths, at the end of the harvest season, emphasizes all three of those realities too, coming out of Egypt and the law and the harvests and the fruitfulness of the land and rest in the land. But it emphasizes especially the blessings of life in the land, rest in a settled, fruitful, and productive land. And so, how is the Feast of Ingathering fulfilled? The Feast of Booths. It's fulfilled in the rest that we have in Jesus. And all those, as Paul says, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, he has poured out on you through his spirit. And it will be fulfilled, ultimately. When is the Feast of Booths ultimately fulfilled? When we come into that settled land of heaven. When we enter fully, even as Israel did into Canaan, when we enter fully into our inheritance, there is the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. Ethos. Now, there's one more annual pilgrim feast that's connected with a specific milestone in the progress of Israel's harvest. The Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, that marks the beginning, we know, the very beginning of harvest season, specifically of Israel's grain harvest, specifically of the barley, which ripened first. The Feast of Weeks, this is the third feast, it comes in the middle. This Feast of Weeks marks the end, not of the entire harvest season. We know what feast that is, that's in gathering and booths. It marks the end of the grain harvest with the gathering in of the later ripening wheat. And so we read in Exodus, Also you shall keep the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. You shall celebrate the feast of weeks. That is the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Now why was this feast of the harvest also called the feast of weeks? This is important. I know this is more of a hang with me sermon, and so I'm, I'm, I'm doing work in my best to help. And I hope that we can see this at the end. It'll all gel together and come together for us. While the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread at the beginning and booths at the end of harvest, they were both assigned specific dates on the calendar. So they were like lucky feasts, we, we might think. You know, they got their own dates on the calendar. Passover began the 14th or 15th day of Aviv. Booths began the 15th day of Tishrei. God spelled it out. But this Feast of the Harvest, it doesn't get its own date. It does not get its own calendar date. Instead, the date of its observance is calculated every year. By counting days, starting with that offering of the first fruits of the barley harvest during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we read in Leviticus 23, you shall also count for yourselves 
So this feast doesn't get its own specific date. You have to always calculate it by counting from the day after the Sabbath during unleavened bread. From the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, the first fruits of the barley harvest, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths or weeks. Seven complete weeks. Sabbaths. You shall count, you shall count 50 days. Now when you translate 50 into Greek, you get Pentecosta. Pentecost. Pentecost simply means 50. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Seven weeks will be 49 days. Count to the day after that seventh Sabbath to day 50. And then you shall bring a new grain offering near to Yahweh. That will be the Feast of Weeks. And so we see that this Feast of Weeks or Pentecost is kind of not a standalone feast. It is, by counting, it is tied to the Feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Let's look at some other comparisons. While the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread at the beginning and the feast of booths at the very end, they both lasted for an entire week. Not only were they lucky that they got their own date on the calendar, they were lucky that they lasted for an entire week. Uh, But this feast of weeks, which doesn't have its own date on the calendar, lasts for only one day. While the Feast of Unleavened Bread emphasized unleavened bread, that's all you shall eat for seven days, the Feast of Weeks was the only time ever when leavened bread was required to be brought as an offering. It's interesting that right after your Feast of Unleavened Bread, you have to start counting 50 days, and then when you get to 50 days, you're required to offer leaven, bring leavened bread and offer it to God. Are you beginning to see how it's tied? How there's this connection uniquely between Passover and unleavened bread and this Feast of Weeks. So the leavened bread at the one-day Feast of Weeks marks the sort of, in your handout, conclusion or culmination to what? That seven-day feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Indeed, in I'm going to quote from one commentator. He says, in rabbinic literature, the feast of weeks is called or known as atzeret, or atzeret, which means concluding feast, the concluding feast of Passover. Now we know Passover is one meal, and unleavened bread is only seven days. But there's a sense in which seven weeks later, you get to the Feast of Weeks, and that is the concluding feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. Because at that time, you bring a leavened offering to God. On the one hand, the Feast of Weeks marks the conclusion and culmination of the grain harvest. Yes! For seven weeks, you've been harvesting grain. You brought the first fruits during Unleavened Bread. Now you bring the wheat harvest to mark the end of the grain harvest. So yes, it's the conclusion of grain harvest. But we ought to know better than to think that that's all it's the conclusion to. Israel's harvests, Israel's feasts, were all partaking of something 
redemptive. They were pointing to these realities. And so, on the other hand, the Feast of Weeks marks a certain conclusion and culmination to Israel's redemption. Maybe you're already there ahead of me. Right? Passover and unleavened bread, which marks deliverance from Egypt, is concluded at the Feast of Weeks. In what sense? How is it concluded? Let me ask you a question, and you answer this question. Why did God bring the people out of Egypt? Why? Passover, unleavened bread. Why? So that they might serve him at Sinai. So that he might give them his law. And that they might keep his covenant. So that by obeying his law and keeping his covenant, they might enjoy the blessings of life in Canaan. That's the Feast of Ingathering. Feast of Booths. What does that give us? What does that leave us with? We read in Exodus 19. It's interesting that this specific date is given. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on this day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. It was the third month that the Feast of Weeks was always observed. It's always the third month. The month of the giving of the law at Sinai. Now we remember... That Passover, which is the exodus from Egypt, and Booths, which is enjoyment of life in Canaan, were both times when Israel reaffirmed its commitment to keeping the law covenant given at Sinai. Right? We are not surprised then that Moses concludes all the instructions regarding the Feast of Weeks that the Feast of Pentecost, he concludes all the instructions with these words. Should this be the only feast that's not connected with the law and the giving of the law? Well, certainly not. It automatically is. As soon as it's a harvest feast, it's connected with law, period. As soon as it's a harvest feast. But Moses says, and you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt at this Feast of Weeks. You shall remember you were a slave in Egypt, which, of course, Passover and unleavened bread. And you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Ethos, the defining character of Israel's feasts. As harvest feasts, all three of Israel's annual pilgrim festivals were to be a reminder that the blessings of the harvest were the result of faithfulness in keeping the covenant, the law given at Sinai. We see this connection with the Feast of Weeks in Jeremiah chapter 5. God says through Jeremiah, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone gone away. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear Yahweh our God, who gives rain in its season, both the early rain and the late rain, 
who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. What are those appointed weeks of the harvest? They're the seven weeks between unleavened bread and weeks and Pentecost. And why does God keep for them the appointed weeks of their harvest? He keeps those weeks of the harvest as they are faithful to keep his law, his covenant. Therefore, Jeremiah points out, your iniquities have turned these weeks of the harvest away from you, and your sins have withheld the fruitfulness of the land from you. The blessings of harvest depended in every way on observing and keeping the covenant law. And so, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, was to be in every way a celebration of the law. And a reaffirmation of the people's commitment to keeping the law. You shall remember, you were a slave in Egypt. And at this feast, you shall be careful to observe these statutes. One other illustration, example. During the reign of King Asa in the Old Testament, we're told that all the people in Israel assembled together at Jerusalem in the third month. Third month is the month for the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. The month when the Feast of Weeks is observed, it was apparently at then this Feast of Weeks, when all the people, and weeks in Hebrew is Shavua, Shavua, okay? That's weeks. They entered into this covenant, all of them together, to seek Yahweh, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and all their soul. This is what they're doing at the Feast of Shavua. We read in Second Chronicles, Moreover, they swore, and the word for swore is the same consonants in Hebrew, although it sounds a little different, Shavuah. They swore to Yahweh with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets and with horns. All Judah was glad concerning the oath, which is pronounced Shavuah. But it's a different word. The Feast of Weeks is Shavuah, Shavuah. The other one is Shavuah. For they had sworn Shavuah with their whole heart and had searched for him with all their desire and he was found by them. So Yahweh gave them rest in the land on every side. In those verses, he repeats that word for oath three times. Shavuah, Shavuah, Shavuah. Indicating, almost certainly, that we're meant to see the word play between oath, Shavuah, and week. Shavua. The Feast of Weeks, then, becomes the Feast of Oaths. Reminding us of the words the people spoke at Sinai. After Moses had read the book of the covenant in their hearing, the people responded, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant. Here's the oaths that that are taken, which in the third month at Sinai, 
which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. Here again, then, we see the Feast of Weeks is a celebration of the law and a reaffirmation of the people's commitment to keeping that law. Okay, come to the conclusion. Thank you for your bearing with on this. But now, do you see? Do you, do you feel the ethos, the defining character of Israel's feasts, connected as they are with Israel's redemption? Do you see what harvests in the land have to do with coming out of Egypt with a law at Sinai, with entrance into Canaan? We see Passover and unleavened bread uniquely connected with coming out of Egypt. The Feast of Booths uniquely connected with life in the land. The Feast of Pentecost connected with all the same realities as all the other feasts, but having a unique connection with the gift of the law at Sinai and the people's obligation to keep that law if they would continue to enjoy the harvests. Now then, we will come next week to Acts 2 and Pentecost as essentially another giving of the law. But this time, not coming on Mount Sinai, but on Mount Zion. And the writing of the law, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our hearts. The law is essential to redemption. We emphasize grace, rightly so. But the law is essential to redemption. We see that in Israel's typological redemption. On the one hand, it is the, in your handout, the goal of redemption. God delivered his people from Egypt. Why? So that they might keep his covenant. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy. On the other hand, the law is the precondition to redemption. God gave his people the law so that by keeping it, they might enjoy life in the land. The law is essential in the redemptive constellation of events. And now then we see the fulfillment of these things in the redemption we have in Christ. And if there's, if, if there's nothing else you come away with and see this morning, I hope it might be the amazing way that God intricately, beautifully foreshadowed every single aspect of our redemption in the Old Testament. Now all these feasts, they gathered it all up together and then Christ took it all up into himself and fulfilled it all in his work. Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt and from God's judgment in the death of all the firstborn was a type of the greater redemption from slavery, my slavery, your slavery to sin and death that Christ accomplished for his people. Feast of Passover, unleavened bread. Israel's entrance into the promised rest of the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, was a type 
of the eternal rest that Christ would accomplish for his people. And all those true spiritual blessings lavished on us in him. That's the feast of ingathering, the feast of booths. So also, the gift of the law at Sinai points us to Christ. First, as the one who fulfilled that law and bore its curse in our place. The second, as the one who through his spirit, who was poured out of all days on the day of Pentecost, who through his spirit has given us the law afresh. We'll look at this next week. Moses ascended Sinai and received the law from God and brought it to the people. Christ ascended Mount Zion and then sent his spirit and wrote the law and gifted it to us, not on tablets of stone, but writing it now on the tablets of our hearts. So not in tablets of stone as in the old covenant, but writing it upon the tablets of our hearts. There then is the fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Thus guaranteeing, guaranteeing our future entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ that we see how Pentecost is truly the conclusion in your handout, the culmination of Passover and unleavened bread. It's not just the finishing of a harvest. Christ has redeemed us from sin and death. Why? So that we might, in your handout, keep his covenant. The law written now upon our hearts. And Christ through his spirit poured out upon us now on the day of Pentecost, has written his law upon our hearts so that we might not ever fail to enter into our eternal inheritance. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the fullness of your redemption. That it includes not just coming out of Egypt, but the giving of the gift of the law at Sinai and the bringing into the land of rest in Canaan. And we thank you, Lord, that today we have entered into the fullness of all those realities because you have through Christ our Passover lamb, you have brought us out from our slavery to sin and to death. You have now given us the gift of your law by writing it upon our hearts through the pouring out of your spirit so that we might enter finally into that inheritance that is promised to us. Lord, we thank you that we can celebrate today the dawning of this eschatological age as people who have the Spirit living within us, indwelling us, empowering us, enabling us, comforting us, guiding us, teaching us. 
illumining your word to us, enlightening our eyes, convicting us, and pointing us always to Jesus. Father, thank you that we can come to this table and see in this feast the true and ultimate redemptive feast. The feast that fulfills Passover and Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths and in Gathering, here in this table, is all of them combined in their true fullness and meaning. So Lord, help us to come now with believing hearts and with joyful and grateful hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.